Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to the book of John. John chapter 18 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you, so I encourage you to grab that. Uh, We're going to be walking through the text this morning at Spring Hill. We've been going through John um, since April of last year. So we've been in John for quite some time. Uh, We're walking through John, and so we've been here for quite some time, line by line, verse by verse through the text. Uh, We have found that that's a a good way to learn God's Word, uh, because that way we're learning God's Word and not leaning on a a pastor to be able to bring some new uh, revolutionary material. Uh, God's Word is our material, and so we want to study it today. John 18, uh, we're going to look at, uh, like we did last week, if you were here last week, you know kind of what we did. It's We sort of jumped around, we looked at uh, one section where Peter uh, denied Jesus, and then we skipped one little section into another section where Peter denied Jesus, uh, because those things are interlaced, meaning things are happening at the same time, and yet the camera kind of is panning back and forth. And today, we're going to look at the other way, okay? What was happening with Jesus at this time? So we're going to look at verses 12 through 14, and then verses 19 through 24, and we'll read them in just a moment, okay? But it's 12 through 14, and then 19 through 24. Uh, I like Netflix. Some of you guys uh, like Netflix or may subscribe, or you do streaming things. That's, you know, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Uh, I like Netflix. Netflix had a show a few years ago that released that garnered a huge reception. I never watched this show. I thought about it, but I just never really got around to it. It was a show called Making a Murderer. And the reason that this show had such a huge reception is because it was sort of uh, eerie and and interesting. Uh, The show was um, about a guy, a, a true story, by the way, a guy that was wrongfully uh, uh, accused and wrongfully convicted and served 18 years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. Uh, and so there's this eerie feel to the show where they're investigating and piling up evidence and counter evidence. And so there's this really strange feeling as you're watching this show, uh, because what you're realizing is that what it seems to be that there's been injustice that's been done. An innocent man has been incarcerated and a guilty man is out there somewhere walking free. The reason I start with that is that when we think about the gospel, it's sort of kind of like that. The gospel is like this, but there's one major difference. One man is, an innocent man is incarcerated or, or convicted of a crime that he did not commit. But the thing is, it's a little bit different. It's not injustice. It's not unjust what happened to Jesus. And the reason why is because in this Netflix show, you have what is outrageous, what is just wrong, and what is unjust. But the gospel is different because if Jesus had had his life stripped from him, it would be all of those things. It would be outrageous. It would be wrong. It would be unjust. And in some ways it is outrageous and wrong. But the thing is, it's not quite. Because Jesus didn't have his life stripped from him. Jesus laid down his life. And instead of outrageous, we see that the highlight of the cross is not this outrageous wrong that's been done, but this amazing grace that's been done. It's not this overwhelming wrong, but it's righteous mercy. It's not unjust because sin was paid for willingly. It's justice. The God has exacted justice because sin was paid for. And so what I want us to see as we walk through John today is that as outrageous and wrong and unjust as the cross feels, it was right. It was right. It wasn't unjust. It was God's justice. And the reason I say this is because I want these thoughts to be on our mind, that Jesus did pay it all. 
that Jesus paid it all. And we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And so I'll, I'll kind of follow that formula. And what that means is that if Jesus did what the Bible says that he did, then you owe God not just your salvation, absolutely your salvation, but you owe him your life. You owe him your life. Divine justice. So let's look at this together. John chapter 18, as I said, verses 12 through 14, and then 19 through 24, all right? Let's start in John 18, 12. It says this. This is right after Jesus was arrested. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Skip down to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we're going to walk through this passage together. In the prior weeks, and this has been several weeks ago, we, we like I said, we've been walking through John, and so part of this is going to be recap, but if you haven't been with us, that's okay. Uh, I'm going to kind of recap just a little bit to kind of set the stage and build some context. Jesus uh, gave this farewell discourse in, in a number of chapters. I think it was like chapter 14 through 17 off the top of my head. I'm not positive on that. But Jesus has instructed his disciples to hold fast. He's saying, guys, I'm out of here. I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you, which is a really weird thing to say. Okay, I'm going to be out absent in the body, but I'm going to still be with you because I'm going to give you my spirit. My presence is going to be with you. But his instruction is for a purpose. His instruction is for this purpose. Disciples, hold fast. Hold fast. Stay with me. Stay strong in your faith as he bids farewell. We see that they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. Peter takes a stab at a guy's head, misses, hits his ear. Um, well, I guess he didn't really miss, right? Uh, but Peter has been or Jesus has been arrested. This conflict has gone on. And so we pick up right here where we saw that Jesus has been arrested. In verse 12, they're carrying him away. It's interlaced, like I said, with the story about Peter. And last week we looked at this in verses, uh, we'll see, 15 through 18 and then 25 through 27. And as I said, it's interlaced, meaning that it's kind of like the camera's over here and then the camera's panning back to Jesus. And then it's to Peter and then it's to Jesus. Peter is denying. He's disloyal. He doesn't hold fast, which is there intentionally, okay? Right after the farewell discourse, the very first thing that we see one of his disciples do is not be loyal to him. That's pretty heavy stuff, right? We're not going to dwell there. But he doesn't hold fast as Jesus has just now encouraged him to do. And so what we see in Jesus is that he doesn't balk and, and cave. Instead, Jesus displays true, enduring loyalty to his Father, no matter the consequences. Jesus did for men what men could not do for themselves. That's an overwhelming theme here, okay? Peter is collapsing. He's disloyal to God, and Jesus is perfectly loyal to a T. Obedient. He did for men what men could not do for themselves. So if you're taking notes today, this is going to be our structure, all right? Two principles to absorb 
in Jesus's interrogation. Two principles to absorb in Jesus's interrogation. It's on the screen behind me. If you're writing these things down, you go for it. The first one is engrave on my heart the phrase him for me. Okay, engrave on my heart him for me. We see in verse 12 that the transition is that there's this prisoner transfer from Gethsemane to this private courtyard. We looked at that last week. They're in a private courtyard where Jesus would be first interrogated by an older, highly revered individual in their society. And so we kind of enter into this stage where Jesus is brought to this place and he's going to be asked some questions. But before he's asked the questions, verses 12 through 14 are very weird. They, they kind of almost exists just as filler. Hey, this is the context. Here's what's going on, John is saying. And so the reason that's there is I want you guys to understand John is setting a stage that is a main theme that we're going to see in the interrogation of Jesus. So look at verses 12 and 13. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, in other words, all the guys that just arrested Jesus, they arrested Jesus and they bound him, a bunch of people. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. We'll pause for just a second. Now listen, I don't think that anyone in this room is, is, an, is an Orthodox Jewish person. You probably don't know uh, that culture. I would just guess that. Just based on looking at you, you look a lot like me. Okay, so I'm imagining you probably don't know a lot about the culture. If you read this verse and just pluck it out, you read verses 12 and 13, it comes off kind of strange, all right? Okay, so this guy is the father-in-law of this guy. Am I supposed to know who these people are? What high priest, am I supposed to know what that is? And so what I'm trying to say is that it's important that we understand historically why these details are significant. John includes them for a reason. And so why are these details significant? Well, this is the first interrogation of several that Jesus would undergo overnight into the next day on which he would be crucified. So what is a high priest? In very, very short, and we could talk about that for the entirety of our time, the high priest was a go-between, all right? He was a man in a very privileged position that was a representative that went to God on behalf of all of the Jewish people. He was the guy, the go-between, that said, I'm going to speak to God on your behalf. I'm going to make sacrifices on your behalf. God, you give me your words on behalf of you, and I'm going to bring them to your people. He was a go-between, and there was only one of them, and he was the highest reigning office in the entire people group. He was a prophet of God to God's people. He was a mouthpiece of God, ideally speaking. He made sacrifices on people's behalf. In other words, he was an atoning representative, satisfying the wrath that was earned by God's people because of their sin. He was also the head of the Sanhedrin. Simply put, the Sanhedrin was sort of like their Supreme Court. It was their highest court officials, and they dealt with crimes, serious things. In other words, he was the agent of God's people's justice. Mouthpiece, atoning representative, justice. In short, he kept the peace. He kept the peace. Now it makes sense because of that, that if his job was to keep the peace, that he would go and and try to find Jesus, uh, a theological and political, I'm going to put in quotes, threat. Okay, a theological and political threat that he would send for this guy to be arrested by his own orders. Why? Because his job was to keep the peace. Honest, if you read your history book, and I'm not going to expect that you would have done that, but he was um, a very important person in in this people group's um, timeline. He was sort of grandfathered in as high priest. Uh, Caiaphas, as it says, I think in verse 13, that he was the high priest that year. But honest, I'm going to explain what I mean by this. He was grandfathered in as high priest too, which doesn't make any sense. I just told you there's only one of these guys. So what gives here? Well, you know how in our culture, if you were to see, I don't know, George Bush. How would you address him? 
President Bush, right? You would address him as President Bush because he sort of just keeps on to that title. It's just the two he was. He was, he was this high official in our government. And so if you saw President Bush, I, like I just said, you would call him President Bush because he maintains that. It's sort of kind of like that. But it wasn't just that Amos maintained the title of high priest. In a lot of people's eyes, he was the high priest still. I'm going to explain why. Uh, in the year 6, because that was a long time ago, 6 to 15, he was the official high priest. He was removed from office by the, the authorities of Rome. Israel wasn't a free state. They belonged to the Roman Empire, and so they ultimately answered to the guys upstairs. All right, This guy named uh, Valerius Gratus took this, uh, this guy uh, on us and said, you're going to have your power removed from you. He was this, this guy, Valerius Gratus, he was the procurator before Pontius Pilate. Okay, So this guy from Rome that was there to govern over this people group of the Jewish people. The high priest was passed down from uh, this guy, Annas, to his five sons and his one son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so it was just kind of in his family, all right? It was him, he was that high priest, and then there was all of his little guys that went on to be high priest after him. We'll talk more about Caiaphas later on. So if he wasn't the high priest, then why did they bring Jesus to him? Well, this is again, in short, but in the Mosaic law, in other words, in their Old Testament, their scriptures, the high priest wasn't uh, something that had a term, four years and then you're out. It was a lifetime, okay? It was a lifetime term. And so it wasn't just that he held on to the title, sort of like Mr. President. He was still, in a lot of their eyes, the high priest. Listen, Roman people don't have any authority to, to, to strip the power of the high priest. You're still the high priest on us. That's the way that the people saw it. And so he still maintained the respect and the honor of the people in that way. He was very influential. So he wasn't the real high priest, and yet in some ways he kind of was. Now why do I say that? John doesn't provide a ton of details of the trials of Jesus like the other gospel authors do. He wants us to know who this guy is. But John gives us a very trimmed version of the story. If you were to go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are more detail-oriented, John is more about big themes. Those guys want you to know the details. There's just different goals here. Where those guys want you to know the details, John gives you a trimmed-down version of the story for this reason. He wants to emphasize the main point. The main point isn't in the details. The main point is before he gets to the substance of the trial, John is going to drop this verse 14 as a callback reminder of what this trial would be all about. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and then you see this flashback in the movie to, to make this other scene make sense. You guys know what I'm talking about? This is what's happening here. John drops for it, verse 14 in there. Just a little, here it is, to remind you and call you back to the main reason that this is all going down. Look at verse 14. He said it was Caiaphas who had, past tense, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. One man should die for the people. John's emphasis in this informal trial is not in the details, but it's in the substance. This was the fruition of a plan that was put in place a few chapters earlier. Turn a few pages back to John 11. John 11. John 11. I'm going to read from verse 48, okay? John 11:48. 
This is what's going on, okay? When, when John says in verse 14 of chapter 18, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is what he's calling back to, all right? Which, if you had read all of John, then you would know that he says what he's talking about. John eleven forty-eight 48 through 52 says this. If we let him go on like this, this is Caiaphas talking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, that's someone talking to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas responds this. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said this to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you, listen, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die, listen, for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you hear the dual meaning in that? Do you hear that? Caiaphas is saying, no, no, no. We're not going to be the ones that go down for this. Jesus wants to call an uproar. We're going to kill one guy to save all of our skins. There's some gospel implications there, right? Jesus dies to save the nation, and not the nation only, but to bring from abroad all of the people. Caiaphas is prophesying and saying, This is talking about the Jewish people. We're going to kill this guy to bring us all together. But don't you understand that Jesus did die one man for all of us. He laid down his life to bring together not one nation, but to bring together all of God's people. You see, Caiaphas, he prophesied way truer than he realized. What from Caiaphas was his own political treachery was also God's saving grace. Think about that. What was his political treachery was also God's sovereign saving grace. Caiaphas's plan was this, kill Jesus so that we may live. God's plan was give my son to death so that dying sinners may live. I need you to understand something as we enter into a number of weeks where we discuss the trial of Jesus. This is a despicable, horrible, violent event. An innocent man was murdered. We're outraged, culturally speaking, by the thought of a killer going free and an innocent man dying in his place. The reason for this callback in chapter 11, verse 50 that we see is at the heart of Jesus' trial is the realization, listen, that you should be the one on trial. You're the criminal. This is your trial. And an innocent man has taken your and my place. What's your crime? That you have sinned against a holy God. God is a God of justice, which means that He must punish sin. God is a holy God. And you stand, I know this is rough, you stand condemned before a holy God, eternally separated from Him, deserving a real eternal punishment. But the good news of the Gospel is this reality, that Jesus became the guilty party so that you could be declared the innocent party. He became guilt so that you could become free. A couple of passages that say this, Romans 4.25, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, hear me say this, that's the gospel. Him for us, Him for me. I'm the criminal, and yet I'm not bearing the weight of the penalty. The only innocent man that ever walked this earth did. So how do we respond to such a gracious transfer of punishment? Well, firstly, 
I want you to realize and to receive the weight of where you would be apart from Jesus. You see, the heavier the guilt weighs on us apart from Christ, that last caveat is very important, the heavier that weight weighs down on us, it only will serve to greater uh, push your admiration for what Jesus has done. In other words, the greater you see sin, the greater you see grace. We sing a song like Amazing Grace. If you understand the depths of your sin, you shouldn't be able to sing that song without feeling something. It means that we don't harbor the same guilt that Jesus destroyed. I think sometimes as disciples of Jesus, we can get so caught up and feel so wretched. And it's important that we feel like sinful people. That's, that's, that's a good reality. It reminds us, like I said, the greater the sin, the greater the grace. We want to understand that. But, church, understand, Jesus put to death your guilt. Your guilt died with Jesus. It died. And when he resurrected, you were given new life in him. There's joy in salvation, not a burden. This life is not miserable, it's joyous. It means that we take sin seriously. It's your enemy that attacks from within. You know, Jesus' greatest enemy, we read through the Gospels and it's very easy to see. It's like, man, these Pharisees, they really hated this guy. What an enemy to Jesus that they were. But I want you to understand that Jesus' greatest enemy was not the Pharisees. His greatest enemy was your sin. His greatest enemy was your sin. The sin of the people at the time. And so I think that an important application from that is that you and I, if that is Jesus' greatest enemy, it needs to be your greatest enemy as well. Set up safeguards in your life. Don't expect to make war on sin by just sitting on your hands. Seek accountability. Seek discipleship. Someone that can hold you accountable and push you further. And as we say, iron sharpen iron with one another. You know, whenever we have a a holiday that comes up where we remember a, a tragedy or a war that our country has, has gone into. Think about something like 9-11 or, or Pearl Harbor, which is coming up pretty soon. Um, you know, The way that we honor our fallen soldiers or, or the fallen casualties of something like 9-11 is that we use that phrase, never forget, right? So I think it's a good phrase. Why do we say that? Never forget. The reason we say that is that by our remembrance of them, we honor them, right? As we remember them, we honor them. You would ask a veteran, some of you guys are veterans, what's the greatest way that I can celebrate the 4th of July? It would say, remember and then celebrate what you have. Celebrate your freedom that you have by remembering those that bought it for you. Guys, that's what we do when we come to church. Celebrate what you have, new life in Christ, while remembering the one that bought it for you. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Remember and worship. Second, principle to absorb in Jesus' interrogation is to choose Christ over convenience. Choose Christ over convenience. Choose Christ over convenience. Verses 12 through 14 sort of served as an introduction. They didn't really get anywhere. It's, nothing really happened. They just brought Jesus to this guy on us. Jesus is in hot water. All right, He's been arrested. Now the interrogation begins, and we're going to blitz right through this, these last few verses. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. We say two things. 
Question about his disciples, one, and about his teaching, second. These are theological questions. He says, tell us about who followed you and why they followed you, and then tell us about the things that you were teaching that caused them to want to follow you. These are theological questions. The reason I point that out is that things are not yet political. They would be presented this way to Pilate later. They would be presented as political. They would say, Pilate, this guy is a political liability. He is an issue, so you need to deal with him. You see, the reason that they presented it to Pilate as political is because Pilate, Pontius Pilate, a Roman guy, okay, he is a Roman procurator. He wouldn't care about Jewish affairs or religious wars. He wouldn't care about those things. He's trying to keep the political peace. And so Pilate would not care one bit about a theological case that the Sanhedrin would bring to him. But if it impacted him, in other words, if it was a political unrest in his region of which he was responsible, he would be more likely to act. Make sense? It's kind of like this. When I was a kid, I had three siblings. There were four kids. Uh, and my, my dad was a pastor. My mom a pastor's wife, believe it or not. I know that you put it together, it doesn't make sense. Okay. Anyway, so they would oftentimes have to go and, and be part of uh, things at the church and, and different functions just because, you know, the pastor's life is a busy life. And so uh, they would have to leave a lot of the time. A lot of the time they would have to leave us with the babysitter, but it got to the point where my older brother was like nine and he was old enough to take care of us. Nine. I'm being serious because I remember him being the guy in charge. I'm thinking, this guy? This is the guy in charge, my older brother, which he and I, we, you know, whatever. So uh, I remember, you know, we were brothers, my older brother and I, and then the younger two were, you know, very young little kids. And so I remember uh, we would have little bouts, little conflicts and things. And my mom and dad would always tell us they were on a date or they were like a church function or something like that. They would say, do not call us unless it's an emergency. Do not call us unless it's an emergency. Now, listen, this is this happened, OK, that like. He would like take the remote control from me or like we'd be playing Nintendo and he would be cheating or something like that. And I would like call my mom and be like, listen, this is an emergency. <laughs> this is happening. Now, how do you think that she responded to that? Not good. Don't ever call this number again unless you have something that actually garners my attention and needs me to step in. But if I called and said, mom, the house is on fire, that would get her attention, right? One of those things is not very severe because it has nothing to do with her. It's like, figure it out. I don't care. One of those things is much more severe and it was much more pertinent to what she had going on. Now, the reason I say that is because this trial is going to begin theological, but it's going to grow into political case. And the reason why is because these guys, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, are manipulating the circumstances to make it to where Jesus has to be crucified. You see what I'm saying? They want to get people in, in charge of this pilot. They want him to make it to where Jesus is crucified. So what begins as a theological case, they have religious issues with Jesus, becomes a political case. And we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. So they ask him about his teaching, theological. Things like teaching at the temple or about you know defacing the Sabbath or whatever it is that they accuse Jesus of doing. And we see details of that in the other Gospels. Look at verse 20. Jesus' answer is this. After being interrogated about these things, he says, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues, in other words, public places, and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said the same, uh, I've said nothing in secret, meaning that what I said in private is the same as what I said in public. In, in the same, uh, he, what he's saying is, I'm the same person and teacher in public as I am in private. I'm not building some mob conspiracy. All right? Look at verses 21 through 23. Why do you ask me? <laughs> this is so good. Look, look at this. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. 
But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now remember, again, we're reading this with 21st century American eyes and ears, which doesn't really make sense. Jesus seems to give a very reasonable defense. And then this guy just pops him. By the way, the flat of his hand, it means he slapped him. All right, He gave him a real blunt blow right across the face is what this looks like. What Jesus is saying is, ask anyone who I am. Not just my disciples. You can ask anyone. I've taught publicly the same thing that I taught privately. You go to the temples, the synagogues, anybody will say they'll be exactly honest about what it is that I'm teaching. Now, Jesus seems to provide a logical answer, but it's clearly taken disrespectfully, and Jesus is slapped for it. So why? What happened here that we're not understanding with our American eyes and ears? Well, here's the context for this smack across the face. It was illegal to interrogate a defendant directly. Jesus would be the defendant, all right? So if they're asking Jesus direct questions, that's not legal. That's an illegal activity. And for the high priest to be doing that, that's kind of strange. All right. They shouldn't be interrogating Jesus directly. This is a private trial, not in front of the Sanhedrin, though. And so the official high priest, which is Caiaphas, was not there. And so it seems that Annas has sort of uh, been an unofficial tenured high priest that sort of found a loophole. Well, we're in private. This isn't an actual case. And so I can ask you whatever I want. But Jesus understands he is being put on trial here. What he says can and will be used against him, in other words. And so what he's saying is, hey, why don't you ask not me? Don't ask me ask Don't ask me questions. You shouldn't be interrogating the defendant. Ask the witnesses. Jesus tells him. Now the proper procedure and the reason that he says this to ask the witnesses is because you weren't allowed to interrogate the defendant, but the proper procedure was to interrogate witnesses for the defendant first and then interrogate witnesses against the defendant. In other words, people that defended his case and then people that wanted to prosecute against Jesus. But they're interrogating Jesus directly. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey guys, give me a fair trial here. Give me a fair trial here. Do the right thing. Why are you asking me questions? Ask the witnesses. Go get anybody you want even. Ask the witnesses. He's asking for a fair trial. And the strange thing here is that in asking for a witness about him, which was true to the law, Jesus was in effect calling out the high priest for illegally questioning him. And so this aggressive bystander that smacks Jesus, he was he would probably, I mean, surely say that he was defending the high priest and he perceived that Jesus was dishonoring the highest official in their nation. You see what I'm saying? Good understand the context here. Jesus has dishonored their president, so to speak. He's dishonored the, the highest ranking official. And he said, you're doing something illegal. And so one of his men smacks him. He gives him a pop. Jesus is asking for a fair trial. But this is but a sample of what was to come. You see, Jesus held to the truth as defined by God as opposed to yielding to the so-called truth as defined by his culture. And it would lead to a slap now, but a brutal murder later. I think there is a good principle that we can take from this. Jesus boldly stands loyal to the Father even when it compromises his circumstances. Jesus boldly stands loyal to the Father even when it compromises his circumstances. Guys, listen, being a follower of Jesus means obedience no matter the consequences. Jesus stood for God's truth even when it bucked against the culture's truth. 
And listen, if Christ lives in you, emulate Christ as we see him in this passage. Obedience, even when it means circumstances become less than ideal. Obedience, even when it means that your circumstances become less than ideal. That means obedience and losing sleep if it means that you have intimacy with God and are tired the rest of the day. It means that you lose a little bit of money if it means that you're not manipulating a client or a customer to get ahead. It means losing close friends because you know the interests of a believer don't line up with the interests of those people. It means lose external peace with a spouse and confess sin for internal peace with God and trust Him with the circumstances. You will have to choose whether to preserve your circumstances or to preserve your relationship with the Lord. And so I think a principle that we see here is to choose Christ over convenience. We live in a culture that is constantly pushing against the grain of what the Bible teaches, right? Right? I think it's very obvious. Our culture is going to constantly continue to buck against what we see clearly drawn out in Scripture. And you will be put to the test. Will you preserve your circumstances and protect your situation? Or will you follow Jesus even when it's inconvenient? Christ over convenience. Verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And this kind of serves as a transition verse. It moves us into the next part of the story. You see, if Jesus is to be brought before Pilate for capital punishment, then the legal accusation must first be brought to the actual official high priest and the actual Sanhedrin which would be Caiaphas and his people. And this is what's going to happen next. That's what they're going to do next. The irony here, and this is, this is so sweet, because I, there's something that's so interwoven into this passage, and that is this jockeying interrogation battle between the high priest and this office and Jesus. But the irony of that is this, that Jesus is the great high priest. Isn't he? Jesus is the great high priest, the go-between. How is Jesus the great high priest? Well, not only because the book of Hebrews says it over and over and over again. I'm going to tell you why Jesus is the great high priest, the divine go-between. Because just like I said for Annas and for Caiaphas, they were entrusted to be the mouthpiece of God, the atoning representative for God's people, the exactor of justice, the keeper of peace. Doesn't those things sound like what Jesus does for us? The Jesus is the mouthpiece of God. The Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus is the mouthpiece of God. His words are the very words of God. Which is why this is a precious, precious artifact. Something that we should embrace and protect. He's the mouthpiece of God. And so we need to covet and want to embrace His teaching. He is the atoning representative of God's people. We talked about that just a moment ago. Him for us, right? He is the atoning representative and he doesn't take a sacrifice of bulls and goats or lambs. The atoning sacrifice that Jesus brought was his own body and blood. He was broken, bruised for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquity. And by his blood, he has bought you peace. He is the exactor of divine justice. Oh, justice was done. He received the punishment so that you could go scot-free. He is the great high priest. And finally, he is the keeper of peace. In fact, we call him the Prince of Peace. 
through the keeper of peace. How? Because he is our go-between. You come into this world in an enemy with God, at enmity, conflict with him. But Jesus, when he died on the cross for your sin, what he did was he bought you peace. He purchased peace for you. And so when we do things like, when we pray, I'm going to pray in just a moment. When we pray and we finish our prayers with in Jesus' name, I want you to understand what that means. That means that Jesus is the reason that you were able to have access to God. Because He has brought two parties that were at conflict with one another together in peace. And so I think the appropriate application today is to internalize that reality. That you are not innocent without the name of Jesus. You're at war with Him. But the good news of this interrogation and this gospel is Him for me. Him for us. And if there's anyone in this room, in fact, I'm, I'm certain that there is. They, when, when Holden and Morgan and Ellie were reading their testimonies, you know, we talked about how to do that. They're, those were their words. They wrote those things, and, which it blows me away. It just tells me that it gets God that writes those words. But when they wrote those words down, we had a simple formula. The formula was before, during, and after. Okay? The before was who we were leading up to the moment that we gave our lives to Jesus. Sinner. Conflict with God. Convicted. Guilty. The during was the moment that we were set free from those things. I'm sure you heard these things, right? Praying a prayer at a friend's slumber party. Sitting in the pastor's office and admitting sin and confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. And the after is asking the church and fellow believers to pray for them. Pray that I would walk with Jesus. Pray that I would despise my sin. Pray that I would continue to walk in Christ. And if you've never done that, if you've never come to the realization that your story building up to this moment is a story of someone that is an enemy of God, but loved by God, I want you to understand the weight of that today. That you need salvation in the name of Jesus. But that invitation is here today. That you're here today because God wants you to understand your standing before Him is not based on what you can do, but based on what He has done for you. And He has shed His blood for you. So today, come. And don't leave this place without being right before God. In the name of Jesus.